Um, hey, it's so good to be with you guys this evening. Um, I don't know about you, but have you just felt the season change? Like, oh my gosh, the sun, it like, it's like a, I, I, I waited, because I can always smell it. You can always smell the next season, right? I waited, and I was like, it's not spring yet. Okay, it's spring. And that's just a couple days ago. And we all just as a team have just been sensing there's a radical shift in season. We're excited for what God is up to. I'm just really grateful for these physical signs that we get um, in our world about what God's intentions are for all of humanity. Like he just is a resurrecting God. He's constantly bringing new life. So um, it's really, really good. Uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 is where we're going to be. And uh, what we're doing is we are in a series called The Church Jesus Longs For. And uh, in this series, we, um, as a brand new church plant, we just started in October, uh, we are getting an apostle's vision into our church by looking at various, uh, what we call highlights of Paul's letters to different churches in the first century. Just kind of a little bit of a survey, picking and choosing some of our favorite parts of Paul's letters and, and asking this question, what is the church that Jesus longs for? How do we become that church. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Gerald Griffin, one of the pastors at Bridgetown here, sharing, and he just said, Saints Hill is the church Jesus longs for. He loves you guys. He loves what's going on here, and there's some really powerful stuff. Um, what I want to talk about this evening is something that's very close uh, to my heart, and it requires a little bit of Bible study. So um, Put your thinking caps on, get your, uh, get your mind ready. But I think what we're going to talk about this evening really gets at the core of what following Jesus stems from. What is the core of what it means to follow Jesus? What, what is it actually, what is at the very root of giving yourself over to Jesus? So we're going to look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. It says this. Y'all with me? Okay, thanks, Waza. Uh, here we go. Verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Verse 24, so the law was our guardian. Now pause for a second. If you've been around with us in this series, you've heard us talk about the law with this metaphor, the law as the nanny. You guys, remember, Anybody remember that, talking a little bit about the law as a nanny? Um, what we mean by that, or what it means by guardian here, is that the law was added to Israel to help them be like Abraham. Abraham had friendship with God. They fall away from that friendship with God. And Moses comes, gives them a law from God in order to help kind of pastor them or nanny them back in line with holiness with God. Many of you guys know if you have kids, you tell your kids to do something. Hey, don't run out in the street. They run out in the street. Guess what? They're not playing outside anymore. They're now inside, right? And that's kind of what the law did, is the law slowly uh, would actually take Israel and guide them. You see many different passages within Le Leviticus of uh, Israel choosing to do one thing and God saying, oh, they don't understand. Let me give them this law so that it guides them back into right relationship and holiness with me. That's what he's talking about. The law was our guardian, verse 24, until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The nanny is gone. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through what? Faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I want to put forth to you this evening that the church that Jesus longs for has faith like Abraham. The church that Jesus is longing for has faith that's like Abraham's faith. Um, The year was 2016 when I basically came to the crux of deconstructing my faith. Um, I was a pastor of uh, youth and young adults at Bridgetown, and I had basically gotten to this point in my life where my faith had begun to erode as I began to question, can I really trust this about him? Can I really trust this about what it says here? And what I was calling intellectual pursuit was actually an excuse uh, to get away from some of the moral obligations of following Jesus fully. Ever been there? Don't need to raise your hand. Anyway, uh, so in 2016, I'm having this moment where I'm like, I know more, I have more access to more knowledge than Matthew, than Mark, than Luke, than John. And yet, I have found myself in this place. I know about you, God, but I'm not sure that I love you. And I was walking home from, uh, from work one day. I, I live just down the street from our office. I'm walking home from work. And it's, I'll never forget it, it was a hot day. I had my backpack on, and my back was just soaking wet. I have my earbuds in, and I'm listening to this podcast. And this pastor is talking about how when we look throughout the scriptures and we look down through Christian history, the people who changed the world were those who took God at his word and had relationship with him. They looked for his promises and they lived on them. And that language was foreign to me, like living on his promises. Like, what promises? I'm like, I, I don't see the, the promises. And I got home and, I, and I, I remember just like putting my bag down and thinking, I was so zealous for you, Lord. What happened? I knew you, God. What happened? See, there is a pursuit of God that allows you a specific level of control, and I had fallen for it. Always keeping God at arm's reach, but maintaining that I would be the deciding factor for any decision in my life. But this is a type of pursuit that we don't see in those who changed history. There's a pursuit that looks more like the young rich ruler coming to Jesus than Peter flinging himself into the sea when he sees Jesus. Those are two different things. And I remember I just, I sat down, I'm like, what happened? And I just felt this voice in my, in my head come through and it just said, Alex, examine the fruit. Like, examine the what? Examine the fruit. And I felt like I was supposed to examine what is the fruit of skepticism and deconstruction getting in my life? And so I began to examine, well, what does my life look like right now? Well, I'm mainly in fear. I remember every night I would, when I, 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 Emily and I had just gotten married, she would be falling asleep, and I would literally think, all that is keeping her alive right now is just the beating of her heart. And it terrified me. I'm like, well, what if she dies? Who am I then? What, what? And I remember um, I, I had this kind of just wishy-washy thing. I, I had to get, get up and share. I'm like, I have to preach. <laughs> and I don't even know what I believe anymore. And so it was just powerless. 
remember I just had this incredible sense of anxiety. I'm like, I've deconstructed and talked myself out of so much that I don't even know what is solid ground anymore. That was my fruit. And then I remembered, Alex, remember, what was the fruit when you took Jesus at his word? And I remember, oh, my feet were on solid ground. I remember I had passion for you, Lord. Every day I would wake up in joy, just excited to see what we would be doing together that day. And my story is this. I made a choice. I want faith that risks for Jesus, even if the risk is that in the end I find out I was wrong. It's it's worth it. I want the fruit. I want the faith. Now, um, maybe you're sitting here this evening and the rumble of deconstructions, backhoes just turned on in your heart, and you're like, oh, taking just blind faith, that's what you're going to talk about this evening? Now, hang on a second. See, I I believe this, that the problem our culture has with faith is actually a problem with religion, not Jesus. Nietzsche said this. He said, we killed God. As, as the human race, we've finally gotten rid of him, but it, it seems to have not done the trick. One of my favorite authors, Julian Barnes, he's this British author, really amazing guy, he, he said this in one of his books. He said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And that's, I think, where many people in our culture are at today. Uh, Dan Savage, he's a uh, sex columnist. He, he feels this pressure between the desire for the divine but not being able to muster up faith. He said this about the death of his mother. This inability to reconcile myself to death has not been good for me. I visit St. James like a crack addict visits a crack house for a fix, to deaden the pain, but losing myself for a moment in the fantasy that she lives and that we will be together again. There is an inscription on the ceiling of St. James, I am in your midst. If I were the kind of person who could believe, I would, but I'm not that kind of person. This tug of war that he's experiencing, that many are experiencing in our culture, mixed with the desire to be morally autonomous, has led to deconversion and deconstruction. A a large number of young people, if you're parents, you probably know this, uh, or if you've just been paying any attention at all, a large number of young people today are in a process of removing any restraints that religion has caused, which in some sense is a really good thing, but unknowingly, what many young people are doing today is removing the very thing that they long for in the process which is relationship with a good father. This is why we're seeing such a disillusionment with millennials and the nuns. You've heard the people who check none on their religious affiliation survey. Um, We're still hungry for the truth. We will always be hungry for the truth until we realize that believing God, trusting him, reverses the disbelief of Adam and Eve in the garden. What was the mistake of the garden? Disbelief. What will heal that belief? Many have seen uh, religion as a way to control people from without, doing little to free them from the incessant chatter of the inner man, looking for meaning, looking for identity, searching for purpose. And Paul is adamant that only one thing will deliver freedom, identity, and purpose, and it's to have relationship personally with Christ through taking him at his word. In the book of uh, Galatians, Paul is upset about religion. 
He's upset about religion. A little bit of background on this text for you. At this point, uh, the Galatians have been a well-established uh, Christian faith for close to 8 to 12 years. And he, here, here what Paul is doing is he's writing to an entire group of churches, not one specific church. Galatia is a region. And um, here's the catch. There's a problem in Galatia, in this region, and that's what Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians. And the problem is this, Jewish missionaries, Jewish missionaries sent to corrupt their freedom in Christ. So close your eyes with me for a second. I want you to imagine this in your mind. Imagine that you are a brand new believer in Antioch. You grew up paying homage to various Greek gods, and ever since some of your friends started going to meetings called the church, They can't seem to get this idea out of their heads that there could be a God who is interested in you receiving love from him regardless of whether you sacrifice meat correctly or even if you sacrifice it at all. And this thought is beginning to catch you as you ride the chariot bus to work. It it seems to press on your mind even while you repair the local aqueduct with your buddies. You start hearing stories of people who actually knew this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and you think to yourself, where even is Nazareth? Eventually, you find yourself believing that Jesus is real and that his life maybe meant more than an average person's life, and you instantly feel this weight off your shoulders. You begin to care about holiness and other people for the first time. In fact, the other day, when you rejected your friend Tiberius' invite to the temple, he replied, you've just changed, man. But then something happens. Some new missionaries come to the friend's house where you normally meet to talk about Jesus. And they say that you have to become more Jewish in order to follow the way of Jesus. It doesn't come as too much of a surprise. After all, it's pretty similar to what the gods require of people. But the only thing is this, what they're saying is completely opposite to what that guy who helped start the meeting named Paul was saying. You can open your eyes. Basically what's happening in the book of Galatians is Paul is going toe to toe with a group of people called the Judaizers. They're just gonna Judaize you, like gotta become Jewish. And his indictment of these people is scathing. You are perverting the gospel of Christ. You can almost feel the heat coming off of Paul as he opens this letter. Next slide. This is how the book of Galatians begins. Paul, an apostle, sent from men, not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me, blah, 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 blah. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. Galatians is the only book that doesn't open with thanksgiving. It's like he just forgot it. He's like, I'm astonished that you are deserting the grace and freedom that Christ has given you to tack on more concrete things like Jewish adherence. And Paul's upset because he knows it's lifeless. Another way that you could translate this would be, I am astonished you're deserting grace and you're turning to something that's not good news. It's not good news. How are these Jewish missionaries perverting the gospel? Well, they were leeching religious duty and practice into the heart-to-heart relationship that Jesus purchased for the Galatians. 
primarily through trying to get the Galatians to be circumcised or follow Levitical kosher laws. And Paul's response is this, guys, it's a big deal to diminish the freedom Jesus paid for on the cross with duty and slugging it out in religion just like everybody else around you. Christians are supposed to be the most free people around, period. Paul's revelation was this. Jesus' death and resurrection meant that for those who wanted to count for them, the work of Jesus would be applied to their account. It was a whole new world where Christians were able to live from approval and security and power and peace rather than trying to get those things out of life. They could live from those things. This was revolutionary. This simply reversed the constructs of religion. Here's the construct of religion. Religious news would be this. You guys need to behave. Get circumcised, follow kosher. Also, you should believe these things and then you'll finally belong. Here was the message of the gospel. Good news is this. Hey, you belong because Jesus did all of the work you're in. Here's what we believe about Jesus and trust me, your behavior will follow. The idea that trust in Jesus meant you no longer had to strive but you could rest because of what he's done. Now, um, Paul, getting to the crux of his argument for faith in chapters three and four of the book of Galatians, if you've read these chapters in full, you will know they center on one central figure that Paul keeps pointing to, and that's this homie, Abraham. That's, that's a Yen Louis uh, original um, photo there. And if you know the story about Abraham, you know that God had promised Abraham children numerous as the sand on the seashore. So he makes him that promise. Then he says this, I'm gonna bless you so that you can then be a blessing to all of the nations. But why is Paul bringing him up? What does he have to do with faith and with the gospel? Well, um, Abraham was considered the father of faith in the scriptures. Not because he believed so much. It's like, dude, this guy, he believes anything. Talk about the father of just blind faith. Old Abraham. No, no, no. He's called the father of faith because of what his faith did. What his faith did. So what kind of faith did Abraham have? Well, he had Genesis 12 type faith. You guys ever read Genesis chapter 12? It's just powerful stuff. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham. He says, I'm gonna bless you and I have this purpose for you. And he gives Abraham a choice. Do you want it? And Abraham then chooses to respond to this suggestion by leaving his home, leaving his family, and by following God to a land he's never been. Actually kind of similar to what we see with the disciples, right? Leaving everything. We, what do they say? We've left everything for your sake. And then we see in Genesis chapter 15, we learn that even as Abraham wavers a little bit on this decision to uproot everything for a promise that's not looking very likely. He believes God again, and it says in Genesis chapter 15 that as he believes God, it's credited to his account as righteousness. Now, pause for a second. I would argue that the greatest pursuit in all of life for all of humanity is the pursuit of righteousness. There may be other words for it. There may be other lingo around it, certainly other methods, but every human being longs for this, to know that they're good, and to know why they're good. Think about this. In the text, Genesis chapter 15, you need to go and read it sometime, we have the key to how do you get righteous. 
How do you get righteous? Oh, you take God at his word and you believe his promises. That's how you get righteous. It was credited to his account as righteousness. It's very simple. And this is why when you trust Christ for what he's done, Paul says you become children of Abraham. Why is that? Well, it's because, anybody ever sing the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, I, have one, I am one of them? Okay, here's why. Because the shape of Abraham's faith is the same shape our faith must take with Jesus. What is that shape? It's the shape of risk. It's the shape of being willing to step out, to bend the knee, to submit before we get the victory, before we see the fruition, before the promise actually comes to fulfillment. That's the shape that all Christian faith is intended to take. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at three things that this passage teach us about what this type of faith does, what this shape of faith does. When you trust God, like Abraham trusted God, what happens? Firstly is this. You get freedom from self-justification. You get out of the rat race. Look down at your Bibles, verse 24, it says this. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Justified by faith just by the simple act of trusting God. Oh, you trusted him? Okay, you're good. You're justified. How does that work? Well, being justified is the moment in your life when your righteousness is recognized. I'll say it again. Being justified, if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. Being justified is the moment in your life where your righteousness is recognized. You're righteous. You've been justified. Now, my wife and I love this show called Suits. Anybody ever watch Suits? Heard of Suits? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Anyway, we're a little bit obsessed with Suits. Now, what I want you to imagine is I want you to imagine a courtroom. Suits takes place in courtrooms and, and debating and basically trying to exonerate people, trying to justify them in the midst of a lawsuit, right? When somebody is exonerated from a crime, they have been tested and found righteous, or another way to put it, they're justified, right? Hey, we, we looked into this person's background. In theory, this is how it's supposed to work. We, we, we checked out all of the sources we have a, you know, a, a blind jury here. Justice is blind, and it, you know what? They're, they've been justified. They're just, and they're, quote, righteous. Now, here's the thing. We get that for a courtroom, but how many of you guys understand that every human being is in pursuit of trying to be justified? Trying to give a reason for their existence, a justification for their actions, a purpose for their life. I'm sure even some of us in the room, we feel that profoundly this evening. And so many people find their purpose uh, in a job. It's like, well, wh what's your purpose on life? Well, I have this job. I do this thing. I add value in this way. I'm just, I'm justified. Some people do it in their finances. They're like, if only I can just get this certain amount of finance in my life, if I can get this cash flow, then I will feel like I'm actually worth something, like I actually have value. Some of us do this with a spouse, especially for those of you who are not married, you're like, if only I can get a spouse. If I get married, then my life will be worth it. I can be justified and I'll actually have value. Some people, uh, we do this in church a lot, we sanctify this and so we say, um, well, I just serve a lot. And so because I serve a lot, um, that's what makes my life worth it. 
Um, or, or, or we center our lives around our kids and we say, okay, I'm just going to raise these kids. They're what's giving me purpose. They're what is actually justifying my life. But for those who are in Christ, the gospel is the news that Christ gave your life purpose and value and meaning already so you can rest. You don't need to work for it. But to ignore his work to justify you, to make you righteous, to make your life have value and meaning, to ignore it in favor of our own self-justifying is to pervert the gospel. This is what Paul is talking about. So how do we pervert the gospel in our churches today? Well, I'll tell you. By creating structures in the church that sound righteous, but in reality do not apply the blood of Jesus over every individual. Instead, they require people to behave before they belong. And if you're here this evening and that's been the case for you, that's been your experience in church, as a pastor, let me just say I'm sorry. That's anti-gospel. We are zealous about this at Saints Hill because one of our core values is the goodness of God. In fact, it's our first core value. God is actually good. That's his character trait. Oftentimes, the first thing that religion does when it gets into a church is it waters down the goodness of God and it requires humans to make up for his lack of goodness through their ability to behave well. This is what the religion of Christianity has been built upon, not what relationship with God has been built upon. But what it does is it ignores the cross and resurrection of Jesus, either completely or partly. And so then it puts a heavy burden on people's shoulders to make up for their own righteousness, not believing that what Jesus completed on the cross was enough. And it kind of, honestly, it kind of plays into our human nature at some level. Isn't it hard to be given something that you can't pay back? (laughs) Maybe that's just me. Okay, I'll try over here. Isn't it hard to be given something that you just can't pay back? We've had some friends of ours recently who have given us really extravagant gifts, um, some really amazing things. And I'll tell you what, if you want to know if you're religious or not, when you're given a gift, if you have to pay it back, that's the spirit of religion coming up. I, I, got, well, I was given this gift recently, and instantly I started scheming. I'm going to blow their minds. They thought they were blowing my mind. Oh, no, no, no. I'm getting them a gift that's even better. And the Lord stopped me and he said, oh, so you can't receive, can you? <laughs> I'm like, he's like, you know, I'm kind of, this whole thing's based on you being able to receive. <laughs> Many of us were raised with the idea that it was based on what we could offer to him. This is why one of the primary lessons that we want to teach here at St. Hill is the art of receiving. It's not equal what God gives you and what you give him back. It never will be, and that's part of the good news. Faith like Abraham trusts that God has cleansed us completely and given us purpose and meaning through his love, and he chooses us to partner as friends with him for his kingdom project. That's good news. It's extravagant. And if you don't want to find yourself falling for the trap of religion in your life, I would suggest you learn to receive his love and that you make that one of the primary pursuits of your life. There was a whole season where I had just gotten super religious about reading the scriptures. I think I've shared this before. And so you know what I did? I just said, okay, I'm not going to read my Bible for the next month. And I'm going to, every morning, I'm going to go on a walk, and here's what I'm saying. God, whatever you have for me, I'm walking like this. 
Whatever you want to say, my hands are open, my ears are open, my heart is open. Whatever you want to deposit, deposit in me. I'm not saying that's what everybody should do, but for a season, in order to get out of the mentality that every morning I wake up and I earn my love from him by doing some religious activity, I had to break that off so that I could learn how to just simply receive. You guys ever sit around at your house? Maybe you don't, I do. You ever sit around at your house, turn on some worship music and just take a nap? <laughs> You're like, hang on, shouldn't I be singing? It's like, no. Because you know what? He intends to give to you. I said this at our Christmas Eve gathering this, this last year. A God who needs something from you stays at a distance. A God who want, intends to give to you comes close. He comes close. The second thing that faith like Abraham brings in a body of people is unity. Verse 27, look down at your Bibles, it says this. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither, and man, this is like an anthem. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Faith in Jesus brings unity because we lay down our human scorecards at the feet of Jesus and recognize he loves everybody in equal proportion. The cross levels the playing field. You're not better than anybody else. And they're not better than you. He showed an, he's an equal opportunity lover. He's just like love for everybody, right? We live in this time that's very unique where um, what divides us has become more important to our identities than what unites us culturally. Uh, when you think about the religious impulse of humans, it makes sense that many would like to use what means culture gives them to get distance between themselves and others in the social hierarchy. I'm righteous because I hold these beliefs. I'm righteous because I do these things, and they're not. They're the other. Just look on Twitter. <laughs> and the reason for this is that the religious impulse is at its core comparison-based, you, you can't have religion without comparison because then you have no ability to know whether you're right or whether you're wrong. I'm in, they're the other, and here's the reason why. But for the believer, this cannot be the case. In fact, what Paul says is this, whatever I gained from my race, whatever I gained from my privilege, I count as garbage in order to share in communion with Christ. And the gospel will not let you hold on to other things that are saving you socially. It's all Jesus or it's nothing. This is why, and we're going to receive communion in a few moments. This is why the body and the blood of Jesus matter so much. Why we receive it every week. It is a prophetic declaration of what God intends to do with all earthly distinction, which is reconcile and unite people in the body and the blood of Christ. We're not just taking a crap cracker and just dipping it in some juice. We're actually prophetically declaring with our physicality that God intends to unite all of humanity regardless of differences, economically, socially, racially, sexually. He, he, he desires to bring all of them into unity. It's almost as if when Jesus prayed the prayer in John 17 that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one, that he actually meant it. Lastly, faith like Abraham leads us to this, to power and risk. Verse 29 says this, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
The, the type of faith that Abraham had moved him beyond what was reasonable. It would have been reasonable for him to remain with his family. He was leaving incredible economic security by leaving his family. Um, it was reasonable for him to look at his and his wife's 90-year-old bodies and think, hmm, weird voice in the sky, but I think the prime is past. No more kids. But faith is willing to bend the knee in order to see the kingdom come. In fact, faith oftentimes is the prerequisite in order to see the kingdom come. A willingness to say, I'm going to align my belief and my purposes with what you have spoken, Lord. And then the kingdom is released in great power. Faith is willing to believe God even when things don't make sense. And often what happens when things especially don't make sense is faith tends to actually clarify things. Hindsight is always 20-20 with faith. Abraham's descendants are those who trust God for the impossible. Those who believe God for the impossible. And I want to give you two stories of faith. One is old and one is very modern. Two people of faith. Uh, story number one. One of my favorite poets is Christian Wyman. Anybody read Christian Wyman in the house? Anyone? My wife. Got it. Okay, Christian Wyman, uh, the lady who owns Chapters is a huge fan, so you can head down there and you can probably find some of his books there. He's this incredible poet. Uh, he, he's still alive today and um, is just, he's put language around just incredible beauty and mystery, and I, I really love him. In fact, I have a tattoo with some of his poems on it. So anyway, just this amazing guy, all right? Fanboy. I've never met him, and I don't know that I ever will. Christian Wyman recently was interviewed by Krista Tippett on her podcast, and he lamented this, that in the liberal Protestant churches that he attends, he can't seem to find the same devotion or intensity he found as a child when he went to conservative churches. Here's what he said. This is just fascinating. They are treating it as if their whole lives were at stake. And the churches I go to, liberal Protestant churches, it seems pretty casual. It lacks that intensity. And I miss that intensity. I wish there were some way of harnessing the intensity I felt in my childhood in more sophisticated ways. Now, I love this guy, but I have to say this. This is faith sacrificed on the altar of sophistication. There's a huge movement in the church today that does not want God if they're unable to control how it appears to those who do not believe. And what it's doing in the church is it's removing the core of the gospel, the urgency. <laughs> there are people dying. There are souls decaying. There are people going to sleep tonight in Newburgh, Oregon, who wonder, is there anybody with more hope than I have right now? Story number two. Anthony Ehrlich was a um, freed West, slave, uh, West Indies slave who visited the Moravians on Zinzendorf's property in the 1700s. And he begged Count Zinzendorf, this incredible benefactor to the movement of the Moravians, uh, to send missionaries to his home in the West Indies because there were slaves who had never heard the gospel. So Zinzendorf basically announces this to this group of Moravians who were passionate followers of Jesus. 
and two men, uh, Leonard Dober and David A. Nitchman. I just want to honor them, even though they're not alive anymore, but I, we do honor their sacrifice. They had been captured by the grace of Christ, believing God for his promises to use their lives and to bring about salvations no matter how it looked. They literally sold themselves into slavery for the sake of reaching slaves in the West Indies. They're like, we will go. We count our lives as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Sell us into slavery that we might reach some. See, they had gotten a hold of this truth that there is no slave or free in Christ. And so they had a willingness to sacrifice deeply in this life because they were already living for the next. Here's my question to you this evening. Which story moves you more? Why? I believe that God is raising up a people with a sense of urgency and faith who will carry the next renewal of the West in particular. Faith is at the crux of kingdom growth because it questions The question is this, how much can you imagine God doing in a particular place with a particular people? Your imagination is the ceiling to what you believe God is able to do and thus what you will participate in him doing around you. How many of you have ever had, um, you have something in your life right now that if five years ago I had come to you and told you that this would be the case or that this would have happened or that you'd be with this person or you'd be doing this thing, you would have been like, there is no even conceivable way for me to create a mental series of events to get to that result. Have you ever had that? I have that in my life, like this right here. Uh, Five years ago, uh, maybe I could create a mental way, but I'm not sure. What you believe in the present sets a limit on what you enable God to do in your life. And it is incredibly important for us to build faith by getting close to the one who's faithful and allowing him to massage our hearts and our imaginations to dream bigger dreams for the people around us and the city that we live in. I believe that God intends to bring revival and renewal through our church. I want to just share one more story and then um, I'll be done. In fact, Jake and uh, Hannah, wherever you're at, you guys can come on up. Um, so I was a youth pastor for four or five years and um, when we first started the youth group, we had three kids in the youth group. We had, uh, and they were all pastor's kids at the church, so they like had to be there. And so... <laughs> So there were a lot of Sundays we'd get together. We met during one of the gatherings. And there were a lot of Sundays we'd get together and we'd be like, okay, it's just two of you. Uh, Well, you're going to be incredibly bored unless we get some kind of incentive going on here. So let's go get ice cream. So we just take them out for ice cream. Um, At one point we decided, you know, I think what would be helpful, because we just feel like we're made for more. We want to see more youth in Portland grab a hold of the vision of Jesus. At the time I was serving with this, uh, with FCA at Lincoln High School, and I'm just like seeing these kids every day and thinking, they just got to know the truth, you know? Like, I just want to see them set on fire for the Lord. And uh, so anyway... We decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to switch from Sundays to Thursdays. We'll do Thursday nights, and hopefully more students are able to make it, and it'll be great. 
It just so happened that that first Thursday night that we had, I was gone on a mission trip, and all of my leaders were there to do the first Thursday. And I remember I texted Phil, one of our leaders, and I was like, hey, so like, how did it go? He's like, oh, dude, it was awesome. We had a great time. I'm thinking, hey, this is good news. Awesome. Let's go, God. And uh, he says, yeah, there was a, no students showed up. I'm like, wait, what? He's like, but all of the leaders had like an awesome time. We got sushi. It was amazing. I'm like, what? Thinking like, no. And I was at this point, I'm just thinking like, okay, that's it. For a couple of years of my life, especially during this whole deconstruction phase, I think every year I was like, I quit. I'm done. No more pastoring. I could do anything else right now, Lord. I'm not doing this anymore. Anyway, so I got to this point where I'm just going, okay, God, what is going on? And I'll never forget it. I'm sitting on, I'm sweating (laughs) because I'm in Nicaragua. And I'm sitting there and I go, God, what are you doing? And he says this. Alex, I'm going to take the little that you have and I'm going to use it to spark revival with the youth in Portland. I'm like, that's a thought I would never have. It sounds a little prideful. I'm not sure that I want to adhere to that thought, Lord. And he says, I'm going to do it. Just watch. I'm like, well, here's the thing. The little I have is zero. Okay? So, okay. So, anyway, I come back. And you guys know Andoni. He's one of the elders here. I just met Andoni like a few months before this. So, my, I was in danger. So anyway, I come back, and I get uh, the next Thursday before youth group. I'm sitting with Andoni having coffee, and I, he goes, Alex. I, I, don't know if, I don't know if I can do his voice. He's like, Alex, I have a word from the Lord for you. And I'm like, that's amazing. What is it? And he says, the Lord's going to take the little that you have with that youth group, and he's going to use it to spark revival with youth in Portland. And I was like, I literally heard this same thing. Like, what? Are you reading my mind? Like, you're like, you have these judo moves. What is going on? And you know what happened is I started to believe it. I started to go, well, what if he's right? That night, I, I go up, and we had a few kids show up. It was a really special night. The Lord just really met us, especially in time, the time of worship. And I started sharing this with my youth leaders. And I just started saying, guys, I believe that God is going to start revival with the youth here in Portland. I believe it. I'll be the first. I'll be the first fool. I'll be the first one set on fire. I'll be the one who looks wacky. You're going to look crazy somehow, either following the rat race of the world or following him. You get to pick the kind of crazy. I want his crazy. And I remember I just begun this whole time in my life where I'm just like, God, I don't care what it looks like. I want you. Bring revival. I know that you can revive our hearts again. In our time, Lord, do it again. I started reading these past revivalists, and I, and I began to get this, this truth that I can't get out of my head, and it's this, guys. You will never see renewal come to your city if you don't believe it will come to your city. Every renewal, every revival began with a group of people who just said, you know what, we're going to take him at his word. He promised to pour water out on dry ground. He promised that his sons and daughters would dream dreams and and prophesy over his church. He promised that when the spirit of the Lord comes upon someone, that they'll enable the poor, they'll, they'll help the poor to rebuild the ruined cities. 
And I, and I got this, like, and you know what started happening? Is that when I got set on fire, my leaders got set on fire. When my leaders got set on fire, the students started getting set on fire. We're like having, I remember one night, Jake's leading worship. We didn't even get to the message because there was such a fire in the room. Student after student was just coming up, and they're just like, I have a prophetic word from the Lord. I'm like, did we even talk about prophecy? And they're like, here's what he wants to do. Here's what his intentions are. And kids are going, oh, my gosh, those are his intentions. We started getting these stories about students going to their football games and being like, yeah, well, I used to smoke pot under the bleachers, but then I was just sharing my faith with these kids, and it just blew their minds, and now they want to come to youth group. And our youth group started growing. Why? Because there was a fire, and people want fire. They're not attracted to a group of people who get together and just go, we adhere to these beliefs, and we shake each other's hand and get a nice pat on the back and keep going, brother, keep going, sister. No, people are attracted to people who are willing to sacrifice, willing to risk in faith if it means that the kingdom would come. So, I believe that the kingdom is coming in powerful ways, not just in our church, in many other churches here in Newburgh. And there are so many amazing stories that I hear from various people around this town who are saying, oh, well, God showed up in this way. It's so unique. And he's, he's breaking off the spirit of religion in this way. If I can boldly say this, I believe that one of the strongholds of this town has been the religious spirit, a desire to adhere to principles rather than a person. And I believe that God is breaking that spirit off and he's getting back in touch with his sons and with his daughters. Let's stand together.